Coming up, the Russian promise to put troops on the ground in an independent Catalonia, and the man known as Putin's envoy, who met Catalan leaders the day before an illegal declaration of independence. There is a history tradition of, let's say, Moscow interference in the internal affairs of Catalonia. No name, no identification, it's just Putin's envoy arrived at five. Russia was not intervening in Catalonia because they thought that uh, the Catalan pro-independence movement is legitimate or not, or the claim for self-determination is right or not. That, that was not the case. For them, this was attractive because it had the potential to destabilize an EU and NATO member. My name is Nick Wallace, and this is Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP as it's known. Catalonia is a former principality in northeastern Spain. Its capital, Barcelona, is a world city perhaps more well-known than the Spanish capital, Madrid. And the region is a very important wheel in the Spanish economy. Catalonia has always had a vocal secessionist movement, but between 2012 and 2017, the idea took hold in the political mainstream as pro-independence parties won a majority of seats in the regional parliament. A referendum was called, scheduled to take place on the 1st of October 2017, but the Spanish government declared it illegal. The referendum went ahead, with the Catalan nationalists winning by an overwhelming majority. The refusal of many people to take part and the way the referendum was run raised significant questions about the result. The independence movement declared victory. And on the 27th of October, the Catalan parliament unilaterally declared independence from Spain. The Spanish government immediately dissolved the Catalan parliament and assumed direct control over the region. It was well known that the Kremlin had a keen interest in the outcome of the referendum. In 2020, it was revealed that a group of individuals posing as representatives of the Russian state offered the Catalan president, Carles Puigdemont, $500 billion and thousands of armed soldiers to make the break with Madrid. It seemed like a fantastical tale. But journalists from the OCCRP, working with other news-gathering organisations like El Periodico, Bellingcat, Investigative Reporting Project Italy, Il Fatto Quotidiano and iStories, were able to document a meeting held the day before the declaration of independence between Carlos Puigdemont and Nikolai Sadovnikov, a man known as Putin's envoy. The go-between in this meeting was Carlos Puigdemont's colleague, Victor Teredeas, and two key players, are the Russian politicians Vladimir Zhirinovsky and Sergei Markov, whose names appeared in Teradeus's leaked notebooks. The Catalans wanted cash, and the Russians wanted an independent Catalonia to become a haven for Bitcoin. In my first interview for this episode, I spoke to three journalists, Antonio Baquero from the OCCRP, Mark Marginedas of El Periodico, and Lorenzo Bagnoli from the Investigative Reporting Project Italy. I started by asking Antonio when Russian interest in the 2017 referendum came to his attention. Basically, we were surprised that in 2017, seeing a whole some channels, Twitter channels, and some Twitter bots related to Russian propaganda were extremely committed to supporting independence, as well as Russia Today and Sputnik. So it was like at the first sight saying, well, it's, it's not too normal to see this commitment. Then there was a, a judicial investigation about an, an individual related to the Catalonian Nationalist Party, Victor Tarradellas, 
was an investigation. He was accused of diverting public money. And in that investigation, the Spanish uh, officials discovered that this guy had some travels to Russia and apparently meet some uh, Russian influential individuals. And that is then when I contact my colleague in Moscow, Mark Martineras. Mark, tell me about your first conversation that you had with Antonio about what he'd noticed and the Russian connection. Well, first of all, we started to use uh, sort of private communications because we thought the story was important. I remember he said to me, listen, you need to, we need to look at the uh, role that Jirinovsky, the ultranationalist uh, leader of, of Russia, is playing in, in the Catalan process. And I just remember for that, for the first time, that Jirinovsky in 2017, he organized a, a sort of a demonstration in front of the Spanish consulate with people, with supporters who didn't even know where Catalonia was. So we kind of smelled that there was something kind of rotten there. So uh, the first thing Antonio told me is, you try to interview Jirinovsky because his name appeared in the notebook of, uh, of Tarradellas and ask him about the Catalan process. You better explain the significance of this character, Victor Teradeas, to the Catalan independence movement and the visits that he was receiving from interesting Russian people, let's say. Well, Teradeas came, uh, came to Moscow three times, twice uh, in the, just before the uh, illegal referendum of independence in 2017. He met several people. He introduced himself as an advisor of President Puigdemont, and he did this tour together with the Catalan journalist who uh, is based in, 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 in Moscow, who knows uh, people. Apart from Zirinovsky, Tradellas met a, a person called Sergei Markov, a, a former MP for the official uh, party Dina uh, Rossiya, United Russia. He was a very pro-Putin and outspoken person. He was also uh, somebody, he's also, who is very eager to uh, speak to the press he likes that, you know, even though with his sort of pro-Putin view, he several, several times he spoke to CNN and other, and other channels. When uh, Antonio uh, rang me up and said, listen, uh, we have the, we, we need to contact this person. You need to interview this person. I thought, I mean, related to the Catalan process, I thought he's not going to give me the interview. Because, I mean, this is, if something has happened, I assume that he probably prefer not to mentioned the story, not to talk about it. But surprisingly, he gave me the interview. And I went to the, uh, a restaurant in North Moscow to meet, to meet up with him. And he, yes, and he explained me the whole the entire story. Basically, because he, he's somebody who likes... Um, uh, my impression is that he's somebody who likes uh, to be in the media, to appear in the media. And he was not really understanding the importance of what he said to me. I remember I was taping the conversation and I said to him, I asked him, what the Reyes wanted from you? Your name is written in his notebook. He said to me, these two people, the Catalan journalist and Tarradellas, they wanted me to contact important person, people in the government in order to uh, exchange the recognition of Crimea for the recognition of Catalonia. Since the very first moment he said to me that, and I have it still taped it in, in, in my in tape recorder, I, I said to myself, listen, this is going to be a big, this is going to be a big story in Spain and you don't really understand what you're telling me and the importance that you, that, of what you're saying to the, uh, in the Spanish public opinion. So basically, thanks to a person like Markov who is, and his ego, let's put it this way, the story started to unfold for us. 
Antonio, you better explain how it was that Teradeus's notebooks have fallen into the hands of journalists. This is all to do with uh, a court case, isn't it? Yeah, it's related to a court case and basically it was a leak. We received the documents and we explored the documents. Then we received all transcripts of the voice messages from Taradeus. And and we we look at that carefully. We spent hours and hours uh, reading the, this conversation. The revelations there were massive. So the, the Markov name came up in these notebooks and then uh, Mark was able to get this extraordinary interview, which uh, exactly. obviously anyone uh, who knows anything about uh, Catalonia and, and, and the move for independence would, would find explosive, this idea that uh, the Russians would support uh, the Catalans if, if, if they reciprocated that support for the annexation of Crimea. Um, when did the name Sardovnikov come on the scene? How did he fit into this picture? This is the second part of the story. The issue is that in the, in the core records of Taradellas, in the transcripts of the messages, there's an, an exchange of message. The day before the, the October 26th, the day before the declaration of the independence, where Taradellas asked Puigdemont to receive as he called a Putin's envoy. It goes like that. No name, no identification, it's just Putin's envoy arrived at five. When that was, that, that appeared in the Spanish press, and when that was reported at the time, the independentist movement, and even the Russian embassy in Madrid, they joke about that. They said that there's nothing, uh, imagine we will send a lot of soldiers. So at the first moment, that was, ha <laughs> it was, everybody was joking about that. But we were saying, well, who is that envoy? Who is that individual? That, that, that he, did he really meet the president the day before the declaration of the independence? I mean, it was the most extreme tense day in the recent history of Catalonia. So if in that day, the Catalonian president finds room in his agenda for meeting somebody coming from Russia, this somebody should be somebody important or interesting. So we were focused on finding who was that guy. So we, I, I interviewed Tara Deyes, uh, first off the record. Uh, I can say now because th- at the end he, he confirmed on the record. And I asked him basically, well, who was the Russian boy? And he told me, well, I cannot recall his surname, which is what a coincidence. But he said it's called, somebody called Nikolai. Okay, so I was, I, ju- I jumped into the core record to see if there's any mention to Nikolai. And there's several mentions about uh, Nikolai, but no surname. But there's only one mention where Tarradellas asked to a Catalan journalist based in Russia, do you know a guy called Nikolai Sadovnikov? So we have a surname. We have a surname. We don't know if is that Nikolai is over Nikolai or not. But basically it was like, <laughs> who is that guy? So I've checked with my sources and we found that on 26 October, so the day that Taradellas, when Taradellas told Puigdemont, Putin's envoy arrives at five, that day there was a, somebody called Nikolai Sadovnikov in a plane coming from Moscow to Barcelona and landing at 4 o'clock p.m. in Barcelona. 
one thing that has struck me about this is the willingness of the the Catalonian movement, the secessionist movement, to court Russian aid. Is this a long-standing relationship that the Catalonian secessionists have? Is it an ideological one uh, that they have? Or is this purely venal? Do they just want what Russia can give them in terms of uh, cash and, and, and perhaps even more ridiculously troops? There is a history tradition of, let's say, Moscow interference in the, in the internal affairs of Catalonia. We go back to pres- the first president of the, of the Generalitat, Macias, uh, who went to Moscow to, seeking for help. We also have the, the example of during the Second Republic, Stalin basically sent, um, well, Stalin had only relations with, with, uh, with the Republic, with the Catalan government. But um, the only interest that uh, Stalin had in the, in the Spanish Civil War, and particularly in Barcelona, was actually neutralizing the Trotskyist party, which was part of the government. So uh, my impression was that the uh, Catalan leaders had not really understood the lessons of history, because we see kind of similar things. Russia, even in 2017, unless there is a major catastrophe, would never recognize in the independence of Catalonia. But instead of that, what they uh, kind of used, they sent people of non-recognized pro-Russian republics like South Ossetia. And, uh, and for that, I mean, linking that to the uh, words of Antonio, the Catalan government was desperate to get recognition. Even at that particular moment, it was enough for them. OK, so let's reset for a moment then, Antonio. You've got the name of this very interesting Russian, Nikolai Sadovnikov. You know that he was in Barcelona and that, he, that there was someone called Nikolai present at a meeting with uh, Victor Taradeus. At what point did you bring in Lorenzo into your investigation and, and how did he help? Basically, we decided then to know, to try to discover who was that Nikolai Sadovnikov. And what we discover is that in one side, he was somebody who was a former diplomat in Italy and then that he obtained his visa to Europe in Italy. So that's then when I contacted Lorenzo. One thing that struck me a lot this, to try, when, when I was trying to figure out who was that Nikolai? He was a former diplomat and he appeared in some Secret Service reports in a Western country where he was described as a higher envoy. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about this Western intelligence report because, again, getting your hands on something like this is potentially dynamite because there is now some kind of file uh, in intelligence services on, on this individual. How do you get your hands on a document like that? Well, basically, it's sources. There's a part of the job who is get having good sources, and I had the chance to have somebody who was who was aware. Uh, so I basically ex- I explored all my sources to get this info, and one of them told me we have this Nikolai Sadovnikov somewhere. There's a, a Western intelligence service who had this Nikolai on their radar years ago, and uh, he showed me the report. He didn't give me. He didn't give me, but show me the report. And I was able to take notes. And then I went to, to Lorenzo and say, hey, this guy had a connection with Italy. And then they explored and they, they found, I'd say, the last nail for, the, for hammering the story. OK, well, Lorenzo, thank you for waiting patiently during this discussion. Um, just take us through what happened from your perspective when Antonio picked up the phone and said, I want you to look into this guy. 
first of all, there was this very big problem of trying to get some sources with uh, within the intelligence in Italy. Uh, so trying to double check what kind of information the other uh, intelligence sources gave to Antonio and try to uh, check whether this Nikolai Sadovnikov had ever had any trace in Italy. Well, what was it you were trying to find out? How big a deal this guy was or just, just who he was? At the beginning, it was simply trying to understand who he was. After that, when we were sure that that this guy was really important, we were trying to verify the kind of importance he had and why he was trying to do this from Italy to Spain. Why him? What kind of purpose could have uh, could he had uh, uh, also in Italy? Because. I mean, there are two other connections between this story and Italy that I think can be interesting. First of all, one of the companies connected to uh, Sadovnikov had an address in a very small town in Calabria and linked to uh, some Italian people. And that was very strange. And the other thing that is important to say is that Russian influence is very strong in Italy too, and is very strong to uh, other movements that are against the centralized uh, state in Italy, because one of the movement is the League, which was born as as an independentist movement, basically, for northern Italy. And now uh, the League shifted to a, a nationalist party with connection to the far right, but still... They are the only one with a formal contract with Russia United in Russia, so the Vladimir Putin party. And the, the, the Spanish the Spanish saga was basically the latest one in a long series of investigation about the Russian influence in European countries. And Italy was for sure one of the biggest ones involved in this kind of operations. Okay, so Antonio, you've now got proof the meeting happened. You have identified Sadovnikov. You've seen the Western intelligence report on Sadovnikov. How did you get to the point where you were able to prove the offer, this $500 billion and these 10,000 troops? Or was that still so ludicrous you didn't think it was something that the Catalonians would take seriously? I don't know. I mean, what is true is that Sadovnikov made the offer. We confirmed that he made the offer. But what we don't know, and nobody would ever know, is if the offer in itself was true. If they had that money, if they had this amount of soldiers. I don't know. But what is absolutely true is that they meet with the Catalonian president and they told him that they can provide this amount of soldiers and this amount of money. And the issue is that after that, after the meeting, there was a lot of contacts with between Tarradellas and a guy related to Sadovnikov, where the guy related to Sadovnikov was, was promising him to deliver some money. And there was even a Bitcoin transfer that we could prove. Because in the exchange of the messages, we found a Bitcoin wallet. And we tracked down and we saw that the day that that, that guy told Tarradellas that it's going to send him some Bitcoins, one Bitcoin the right to, to that wall. If I had to describe how was that operation, I, as I told you, I don't know if the money was true, if the soldiers were somewhere waiting. I don't think so. But what I'm sure is that Russia 
was trying to push the Catalonian president to take the decision. That's, in my opinion, the issue. It's like Russia used uh, some informal way to send an envoy to Catalonia and to convince the Catalonian president to go ahead. It's like, I don't know if you have this expression in, in, in English, but in, in Spain we say, hey, jump into the pool. But there's water there. The Russians will say, hey, jump. Don't be afraid, jump. There's it's going to be water there. We will put the water in the pool. <laughs> but, but, nobody, but finally, unfortunately, Puigdemont didn't jump. So this is back in 2017. And you have got uh, Carlos Puigdemont and Victor Teradeus, who's, who's doing his sort of uh, Sherpa work for him. And the two, the two are intimately connected within the movement. And, and of course, Carlos being the president is a significant figure in, in this movement. We've got the Russian connection. Tell me about this other chap who appears on the scene, this, this Jordi Sada, who becomes a very close confidant of Victor Teradeus, uh, promising him all sorts of things. How significant is Sada to this story? Sada is a Spaniard, he's a Catalan. He was in the Russian side. So he, was, he was somebody that when you read the transcripts of the message change, you, you realize that he was working for the Russians. And he was like, uh, he was in the process, in the context, since the beginning, he was the first who contacted Catalonian side of saying them a... Uh, I have Russian friends who want to help the independence movement. He was there since the beginning and is an important character because he appeared in, in the press radar first ten, around 10 years ago in Ukraine where he is in the middle of a big scandal. He impersonated the Spanish uh, national gas company, Gas Natural. He even signed a contract with the Ukrainian officials for building a gasification plant. And then the day after Gas Natural appears, hey, we don't know this guy. We don't know this deal. Uh, so uh, it was a big scandal at the time. So this guy appeared in these processes, in this context as a key player. He was like the contact, the middleman between the Catalonians and the Russians. But he was playing for the Russian side. All the dealings of Taradeyas with uh, Russian officials were very naive. But at the same time, they were taken, the Russians uh, understood immediately that there, there was an opportunity to interference, and they they, they kept offering, offering, offering things, and and uh, and Taradellas was the perfect person for such a thing because um, they had no understanding whatsoever of how the Russian authorities and the Russian uh, state works. I, I don't I don't wish to be rude about Taradellas, but I mean you reprinted some of the text messages between him and and Yordi Sadar, and he comes across as something of a clown. I mean, the, the, there isn't much statesman-like behaviour going on here. No, it's, it, it, the whole thing was uh, was very naive and very amateur. They don't really understand that the, who they're dealing with. They're not sincere. They, they will never keep promises. They just think that Russia is a big state and they, and they were so desperate for support that they found that, uh, you know, that this sort of, this half-hearted support that they were getting from Russia. So much that is unbelievable about this story, but you've documented it all. And then the icing on the cake was that you got an interview with Sidovnikov. We need to talk to everybody. We need to document everything. We need to, to certify everything. Because if not, we're, we're going to be accused of, of doing the dirty job for, I don't know, for Spanish government or whatever. And it's not, I mean, we want to tell the truth. So a colleague from iStories is a Russian investigative outlet. We contacted them. We asked them, 
if they can help us. And we had the, the phone of Sadovnikov, so a journalist, a historian journalist called him. And the interview is crazy. He acknowledged that he was in Barcelona. He confirmed that, yeah, I was in Barcelona. Well, I, was, I, I came to Barcelona to see a friend, and then my friend brought me to a kind of a meeting where they were talking about the independence, but I don't remember because I don't speak Spanish. So he confirmed that he was in that meeting. But, and then the reporter asked him, okay, can we send you a picture of Puigdemont so you can confirm if he is our guy, if, if you meet him? And, and then Sadovnikov said, well, no, it's better not because I've lost, I've got a really, really hard COVID. So I've lost uh, almost all my memory. So it's basically, it's, cra it's quite crazy, but, but it's great because, because he confirmed that he was in Spain. Uh, that day and that and, and in a meeting and you're all smiling and shaking your heads at the sort of ludicrousness of this meeting the ludicrousness of the promises that were made uh, and the, the the as you say mark that naivety of of the the catalonian secessionists in in believing that any of this was going to materialize i mean let alone ten thousand troops on the streets and yet it is a very very serious matter isn't it this Absolutely. is about russian interference in, in, in Western democracies and Western states. Yeah, the, the key issue is that with, and that was thanks Mark and thanks Lorenzo, we knew that at that time, Sadovnikov was an advisor of the foreign, Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry. And that's extremely important because this was not just only an individual who worked at the ministry in the past. It was an individual who at that time was advising Lavrov on European matters so when you see that the guy who meet with them on the day before is somebody who is close to, La to the foreign affairs minister, Russian Putin's minister. Putin's envoy. Exactly. You see, it's a Putin envoy. So that's super serious. Even though if you can joke with the 10,000 soldiers and the amount of money and the knife day of, of Taradellas, they were playing with fire. I don't know if you use this expression in English, but they were playing with fire. And with the, the life of, of Catalonian people. What impact has it had and what would you assess as its long-term effect or even short-term effect on the Catalonian independence movement, Mark? I think that, well, when we first broke the first stories about Tradellas, nobody was believing us. Um, there were, I mean, we received, uh, there was a lot of skepticism from, from, from the independence movement. Puigdemont remained uh, deliberately silent, even though in the previous, before the story broke out, he had already given several interviews to Russian press. And now we see that uh, some parts of the pre-independent movement, they don't laugh anymore about the story and they admit that this is a serious thing. And they understand that, you know, even though it's, very, it's legitimate to have, uh, of course, uh, pre-independence views, allying yourself with somebody like Russia, it damages your cause. Um, Lorenzo, what's your takeaway from all of this? Because obviously you, you came at it from a slightly different angle. And those... Yeah, I think there, this is one of the, the story that presents in a better way and the uh, most comprehensive way how the Russian uh, state uh, agents are basically a mixture between diplomacy and fraudster or criminal organization. Sadovnikov basically embraced both uh, of these things. He is uh, at somehow a diplomatic career 
figure and but on the other side he has also connection with uh, this sort of underworld a- antonio as a result of the publication of this story there must now be serious questions about carlos puigmont's judgment i mean is he ever going to get taken seriously again first he was forced the day after the publication to recognize that the meeting took place and that was a major outbreak because Two weeks before, he said that he ever met with any Russians in an article. And he ever talked about independence with any Russian. There's an article in a, in a, in a Barcelona newspaper. Then the day after, he said to the Catalonian uh, news agency, he recognized basically that the meeting took place. But he said the meeting took place, but we, we didn't take them seriously. But he recognized that the meeting took place. So that's, that's the first important thing that happened after the, we broke the story. Then it's important that nobody else is laughing anymore about the Russian interference in Qatar. Everybody take it extremely serious after that. And apparently in the European Commission, there's a committee about foreign interference and they are taking this extremely seriously. And I think there's, they're, they're going to call some of the journalists who took part in the investigation. So it has damaged his international picture. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, th- there's not a crime to meet with, with Russians. It's not a crime. I mean, from a legal point of view, I don't see it as a crime. But I see this as something extremely dangerous for, for, for Catalonian people, basically. And it, I, what I see, what was my, my obsession since the beginning is that as a Catalan, I want this to be known. I mean, I, I want to know what happened th- these days. I think it's extremely important to know as much as possible. I mean, for the sake of history, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, but as a journalist, as a citizen, I want to know what happened. And if there's some Russians trying to miss things up here, I want to know. My thanks to Antonio, Mark and Lorenzo. Now, let's get another perspective on this. Nico Di Pedro is a senior fellow at the Institute for Statecraft, a non-partisan UK-based think tank. Nico is Spanish and describes himself as not sympathetic to the independence movement. So before we began to discuss the OCCRP article and the relationship between the Kremlin and the Catalan secessionists, I asked him why he personally thought Catalonia should remain part of Spain. Well, I live in Barcelona for the last 10 years with uh, my family. Uh, we are, a, let's say, a multi-ethnic family. My wife is from India, so we are uh, always in a very international environment. So it's not an issue related to prejudices or, or things like that. But basically the group which is facing difficult situation and unfair situation here in Catalonia is clearly those who are non-nationalist. Because the Catalan thing is purely a political thing. Uh, it's not an ethnic thing. It's difficult to trace ethnic borders between Spanish and Catalans. That That's not really, really easy, you know? So there are some, of course, some cultural differences. Catalan is a different language, although it's very, very close to Spanish. So I have no problem in speaking Catalan fluently and, and to understand everything. So it's, it's not a big deal from that perspective. And there are many purely Catalan people, let's say, whose family background is clearly rooted here from centuries and who are not in favor of the independence, while you may find also many people who are uh, second generation, sons or daughters of those people who came into the region in the um, 
1960s uh, as a labor, cheap labor force uh, from the south of Spain, uh, because Catalonia is a, uh, one of the richest areas, or used to be one of the richest areas in, in Spain. Uh, now it's not doing that well after these 10 years of this political crisis. But historically and traditionally, it's one of the richest areas of, of the country. So there were many migrants coming from the south, and many of their kids are now supporting the independent. It's very divided. So it's a purely political uh, thing. And in general terms, I'm not very sympathetic to any kind of nationalism. So I'm not an Spanish nationalism, although I feel fine with the fact that I'm Spanish. So I don't have any uh, issue related to that. But I think that nationalism and this kind of um, nationalistic trend in Catalonia, which is almost everywhere in every context. So it's always around you in your everyday life. And particularly if you have family and if you have kids, it's exhausting, you know, so is that what makes me non-sympathetic to, to this? So obviously the Catalonian movement is being used by the Russian government to basically do what it can to destabilise Spain. Yeah, well, initially my hypothesis, and I think the general view uh, back then in 2017, which is the peak of activity related or the most tense uh, moments from a political point of view here in, in Catalonia, was that, well, basically the Russians are trying to take advantage of this crisis to uh, multiply uh, their uh, outreach and also to reinforce its domestic narrative saying that, you see, uh, Europe is full of crises and permanently on the verge of collapse. So that was more or less the general impression. And it was very visual because uh, it was massive and there were uh, thousands or thousands of thousands of people in the streets, uh, protesting, claiming for independence, etc. So it was something very visual. So they were trying to take advantage of this situation. That was our impression. But when we started to look into more detail, because it was very also tending or something uh, attracting a lot of attention, the fact that they were really active online, on social media in particular. So over those days, the biggest kind of uh, nodes of activity were located in Russia. So the traffic was going through Russia or through Russian proxies or people that we know that are very well connected to, to Russian uh, activity like Edward Snowden, who is based in, in Russia, or Julian Assange or others. So that was really a little bit uh, surprising. And over those days, actually, the Russian media were, were more relevant in terms of traffic on Twitter than Spanish uh, local media. And that was really strange for a local crisis or for something taking place in the territory of Spain. So that was that was strange and attracting or raising some eyebrows. But then we started, me and a few other people, uh, we started to look at it into more detail. And what you found out and, and realized is that there were much more than meets the eye. There was a lot of different activities and a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, in-person involvement of individuals connected to the Kremlin that they were coming to Catalonia. And there were people from the pro-independence movement very actively searching for this support. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you expect the Russians to try and interfere in the activities of, of Western nations. But the Catalonian politicians essentially opened the door to them, welcomed them in and, and tried to cut deals with them. Have they broken any laws? Well, <laughs> that's a very important question. It's unclear. For that, we need more uh, like a judiciary investigation. I mean, the, the Penal Code of Spain says that if you meet with uh, foreign services in order to stabilize Spain or, or uh, trigger or attack the Spanish constitution, etc., that can be considered as a treason. 
So yes, uh, there is a high possibility that they commit uh, treason. Those uh, local Catalan pro-independence uh, leaders. How do ordinary Catalans feel about the exposure of Russian interference in what they believe was a, a pretty straightforward independence process, especially given what's been happening in Ukraine and, and, and Russia, Russia is now clearly and very visibly an enemy of the West. This issue has triggered more reaction outside of Spain than in Spain itself. So in Brussels, both at the EU level, at NATO level, and in the, let's say, main NATO capitals, I know for sure that this issue has uh, raised significant attention and concern. So here inside uh, Spain and in, in Catalonia in particular, Initially, basically, uh, public opinion were in denial. Everyone thought that this is uh, too far-fetched. And people were basically not thinking that this, this can be. Because there was a, a, one big uh, misunderstanding since the very beginning, and still today some people uh, don't get it. They basically, they were wondering themselves, oh, but why the Russians will support Catalan independence? Yeah? And many people were thinking, but they also have some problems inside Russia, similar to this, let's say, yeah, in Chechnya or others. Yeah, it's uh, uh, some regions or whatever that want to detach from, from the Russian Federation. And that's a mistake because Russia was not intervening in Catalonia because they were thinking this is a normative thing, yeah, as a normative intervention, or because they thought that uh, the Catalan pro-independence movement is legitimate or not, or the claim for self-determination is right or not. That, that was not the case for them. This was attractive because it had the potential to destabilize an EU and NATO member. So they were looking at it with interest as a crisis that could potentially break up one important uh, country of the EU and, and NATO alliance. So that, that was attractive to them. But in principle, public opinion in Spain and in Catalonia in particular were more or less in denial or taking this as a joke and basically mocking of those like me researching and saying that, hey, guys, this is happening. And this might be serious. That's really interesting, especially in the light of the invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, that, that changed a bit later on with time. And they were starting to, some people started to realize that hmm, maybe uh, the Russians, yeah, we're seeing that Russians are aggressive now. Uh, maybe that was, there is some reality, yeah. And then it's interesting because those who are in the, let's say, uh, pro-independence uh, media, academia or think tanks, etc., they move very quickly from uh, taking this as a joke or laughing at those like me researching and uh, raising the, the, the issue publicly. They move quickly to say things like, well, you know, everyone talks to the Russians. That's what we have to do. Because if you are uh, uh, aspiring to have an independent state, once we have an independent state, we will talk to everyone. Yeah, And Russia is a member of the United Nations like as it's a, it's a state. So what's the problem? And, and at the same time, Russia is investing in far-right groups and other kind of groups across Spain. So like elsewhere, they are investing or nurturing relations with many different and confronted actors. And then the people get confused. So how it comes that Russia can be supporting the pro-independence while at the same time they have such a strong links with certain people from the far-right groups. And it's not, for those who are familiar with how Russia operates, it's not surprising. My thanks to Nico Di Pedro, Senior Research Fellow at the Institute for Statecraft. Thanks also before him to Antonio Baquero, Mark Margineras and Lorenzo Bagnoli. If you want to read their OCCRP investigation into the relationship between Catalan leaders and the Russian state, it's called Fueling Secession, Promising Bitcoins, How a Russian Operator Urged Catalonian Leaders to Break with Madrid. When asked to comment, Sadovnikov strongly denied having any connection to the Russian government or any intelligence agencies, or offering anything to the Catalonians. 
He acknowledged that he had travelled to Barcelona in late October 2017 and had been taken to a meeting by a friend, but said he didn't really know who was present because he doesn't speak Spanish. Regarding this alleged corrupt plot, Teradeus denied that the foundations that received the subsidies from the Diputación served as a way of diverting public funds. Carlos Puigdemont did not respond to our request for comment about the contents of this podcast, and we were unable to make contact with Yuri Sada Bonvey about the points raised. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley, with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Riam Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a Little Gem production for the OCCRP. Please don't forget to like, follow and subscribe. My name is Nick Wallace. Goodbye. Goodbye.